But I hope you're doing well. And if you have a Bible, if you'll grab it and make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 2, what Becca just read, we'll get there uh, in just a minute. If you don't have a Bible, there's one around you. And if you didn't happen to bring yours with you, one thing, bring it next time. Every week, I'm going to tell you, get your Bible out. Open your Bible up. All right, so if you don't have it, grab one of those that's around you with a black hardback, back one, black hard, wait, I already said, the ones that are in the chair backs around you, grab one of those, open up page 991, is where we'll be in those, um, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Growing up in Bartow County, we did not have a whole lot of sports to choose from when I was growing up. Now they've got all kinds, but when I was growing up, you could play uh, football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring. So that's what I did year after year after year after year after year. And if you've ever played baseball, when you first start learning the game, just, I mean, t-ball, farm league, whatever it is, when you first start learning the game, right away, one of the main fundamentals that a, a coach has got to teach you is when you're fielding grounders to get in front of the ball and get your glove on the ground, all right? So get in front of the ball and get your glove on the ground because particularly if you're playing on bootleg grass clump fields and most of your team wears blue jeans because we can't afford baseball pants, you get in front of the ball and so if it hops, it hits something, at least you knock it down, you have a chance to throw the runner out. So it's just a very fundamental thing. Glove on the ground, get in front of the ball. But then the baseball season ends, it's summer break, then you're in football, and then you're in basketball, and then you're back around to baseball, and so the coaches have got to start barking out again and start reminding you, hey, glove on the ground, get in front of the ball, all right? Because you've been distracted by summer break, football, basketball, you're back around, and you've just kind of forgotten the fundamental. And so the coaches have got to tell you, hey, here's how you play the game. Glove on the ground, get in front of the ball. That idea is very much what 1 Timothy chapter 2 is. It's the Apostle Paul reminding us how to play the game. Fundamentals of what we are to do, particularly when we gather as a church. He's reminding us because we are forgetful people. And so he's reminding us, when you gather, here's two big things that are often forgotten. One, and we're going to talk about this one this week. That prayer and mission in the life of the church is vital. Prayer is vital when the church gathers together. And then secondly, and we'll get on and talk about this one next week, are the gender roles that are to take place when the church gathers. Who's to lead the church? Who can teach? Who's not to teach? And we're going to dissect that next week and probably get into a lot of things that we're like, I've maybe been following that wrongly my whole life because I've been taught this and I haven't been taught this. I think that'll happen for two groups of people. And so that'll be next week. But this week, this idea of prayer and mission in the life of the church. All right. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. That this is to be of first importance when the church gathers together, when we're all together. But that presupposes the fact that we are gathering together. Right. That we are Hebrews 10, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That is vital. It is what we are called to do. If you are a Christian, we trust Christ, and then for the rest of our lives, we live that out in the context of the church. The Christian life is the church life, according to Scripture. And so as John Stott says, whenever we fail to make, excuse me, whenever we fail to take public worship seriously, we are less than the fully biblical Christian we claim to be. 
until we gather together for worship. All right. And when we gather together for worship, one of the fundamental things that we are to do, and indeed one of the most important things that we can do, is pray. And so look at verse 1 with me again. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge, same, same thing as he said in chapter 1, verse 3, urging to combat false doctrine. Here he's saying, I'm urging, all right, urging what? That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And so Paul is just piling up these synonyms, prayer, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving, just piling up these synonyms to hammer home his point that we are to pray for all people. For all people. And so number one in your notes, we are to pray for, and then I already filled in the rest, all people. We are to pray for all people. And so this immediately rebukes the narrow narrow periocalism that so many of us live with in the church and in how we pray. Because according to the Bible, the prayers of the church are to have a global perspective and be of first importance. First of all, then, I urge. And so just historically, I'll give you a little history here. In the life of the corporate worship gathering, the pastoral prayer is a hallmark of historic Protestant worship. It is a hallmark. But in our day, a lot of times people have either abbreviated that or just dismissed it all together. But it's to be a time of deliberate, expansive, extended, and wide-ranging prayer. That is for far more than Aunt Edna's spleen. Now, are we to pray for Aunt Edna's spleen? Yes. And we do. I pray for a colon every single day. Right? So we should pray for those things. Jesus says that He cares for us and we cast our burdens on Him. We take it to the Lord in prayer, right? It's what we are to do. Everything. And prayer truly comes out of a place of desperation, not a place of discipline. When you realize you're desperate, that you cannot handle it, or that you cannot control it, that you cannot do what you need to be done, you will pray. So recognize your desperation. And recognize the love of your Father. And pray to Him. He's a good Father. And He loves you. And He's for you. Pray. Pray. And so we should pray for everything. But particularly here, we must remember to pray for the world. To pray for renewal. To pray for revival. To pray for reformation in the church. To pray for missionaries. We've got several that we are connected with. Chris Crowder in East Africa. The Choates in the Solomon Islands. The people have not forgotten down in Iquitos, Peru. Saeed Akman Bayev in Central Asia. These are folks we know, that we love, that we've seen, that we've talked to, that many of us have met in person. Pray for them. Pray for the IMB that we support with 4,500 missionaries around the world. 
Go to their website. You can pray for someone every single day. We're to pray for church planners. We're to pray that social justice is done. We're to pray for Syria. We're to pray for Afghanistan. We're to pray for Iraq. We're to pray for the refugees. We're to pray for the 1.6 billion people on the planet who've never heard the name of Jesus. Never even heard of Jesus. God, raise up someone from this congregation to go. One of our kids. And spend their life there. For the sake of the nations. We're to pray. And when we are praying in here in a corporate worship gathering, when a church gathers for worship, prayer is not a placeholder in an order of service. It is not a spiritual change of scene where instead of lowering a curtain, we just have everybody close their eyes so we can change the set. That's how it's treated in a lot of churches. We pray out of desperation, out of asking God to work on our behalf and on behalf of the world. It is vital. And so just as Paul urged Timothy, chapter one, verse three, to combat false doctrine here, he's urging him to make prayer a priority in the church and particularly to pray with a global vision. Because the kind of prayer he's emphasizing here is an evangelistic prayer. He says, pray in such a way that the gospel can spread. Look at it with me. Verse 1 again. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This, this what? This kind of prayer is good. And it is pleasing in the gift, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, well, and keep going. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so the idea here is pray for all people because God desires to, to save all people. And Christ is the only hope for people. And so to that end, this evangelistic end, we are to pray for all people, including verse two, kings and all who are in high positions. And folks, when Timothy read this letter that Paul had written him, read it to the church at Ephesus for the very first time, I guarantee you church members freaked out. Because in the synagogue, you weren't called to, like the traditional prayers of Jewish synagogue did not include praying for people in authority, especially Gentile leaders. And remember, at this time, when Paul's writing this, there are zero Christian leaders. They do not exist. They don't exist. Who is the leader of the Roman Empire at this time? Nero. Nero is a guy who threw Christians to the lions and put them on torches to light his garden. That's who the leader was. That was the king. And just a couple of years after Paul wrote this, at Nero's command, Paul had his head cut off. 
And yet here, Paul is commanding the church to pray for him with thanksgiving. Which means then that we are to pray God's best and God's blessing upon President Trump. And when we don't, we're not obeying the Bible. But also, and likewise, I guess, if we did not pray God's best and God's blessing upon President Obama when he was in office, we weren't obeying the Bible. As Christians, we're not allowed to pick and choose based upon political persuasions. We're called to pray for kings and all who are in high position. We're to be respectable and respectful. And pray for kings and those in high positions. And as John Chrysostom said in the fourth century, we cannot allow, wait, that's not what he said, no one, John Chrysostom was, he's called the golden mouth preacher, um, fourth century. He said, no one can feel hatred towards those for whom he prays. Prayer replaces hostility with compassion. Prayer replaces hostility with compassion. Pray for those kings and those who are in high positions. And so we're to pray for our leaders. Pray what? Look at verse 2 again. For kings and all who are in positions, that... We may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so, friends, this is not, and if you keep going, this is good and it pleases God in the, sight of, in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's the impetus for it, but we are to pray particularly for that to happen. We need to pray that we could lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so this is not, a prayer then to live a quiet American dream, middle class life free from stress. It's not what he's commanding us to pray for here. This is about the gospel going forth. And so we are to pray for peaceful conditions so that we can live exemplary lives, godly and dignified. All right. So that we can worship freely religious liberty. So that we can commend the gospel. That's what he's talking about in verse two when he says godly and dignified in every way. That's who we are to be. Godly. Dignified. In every way. In every situation. See, the best argument for and against Christianity is how Christians observe their Christianity. The best argument for and against is how we live our lives. And so if we are jerks, if we are harsh, if we are unempathetic, if we are self-righteous, if we look down upon people who don't fit what we think, want, we don't commend the gospel. In fact, we probably deter people from it. But if we're humble, if we're patient, 
if we're empathetic, if we're meek, if we're willing to enter into other people's heartbreak, pain, frustration, walk an inch in their shoes, try to understand what it's like from someone else's perspective, to listen while recognizing that we, like they, and because like all people, everyone on the planet is a sinner, because we're sinners, we get things wrong sometimes. When we live lives that are godly and dignified, both in person and on social media, behind a screen, that's when we commend Christ. That's when we commend the gospel. Back in seminary, I had a philosophy professor named Bruce Little. Brilliant guy. Dr. Little was a brilliant guy. And he was the kind of guy who debated uh, atheists and agnostics, like well-known atheists and agnostics from all around the country. And so he would go and he would have these debates. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And I will forever remember him telling us and teaching us, listen, if you... Talking about himself, if, if you are given the choice between winning a debate, winning an argument, and maintaining your Christian witness, maintain your Christian witness every single time. He said, there's been so many times where I'm in a debate and I willingly lose the debate because to win it, I would have to lose my Christian witness. But it is more important to maintain my witness for Christ and hope to have the opportunity to lead this guy to Christ than to win the debate. Let's remember that. I mean, it's kind of like that movie uh, my family watched this week with a great quote from this movie called Wonder. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's really good. The guy gives this quote in there and he says, if, if given the choice between being right and being kind. Choose kind. Because our whole goal here, our whole goal on this earth as Christians is to prepare for eternal life. Not now. And to help other people come to know Christ so that they may have eternal life. And so our whole purpose here is to love people towards Christ. We can't argue anyone into the kingdom of heaven, but we can love them towards it. So let's love them towards it. Because God desires to save all people. That's number two in your notes. God desires the salvation of all people. God desires the salvation of all people. Look at verse three. This, this what? This, this kind of prayer, okay? is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so God desires the salvation of all people. He, he wants to see people come to the knowledge of the truth. All people. Right now, do you believe that? We've got to ask ourselves this. Do, do we believe that, that God truly loves the world And will save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you will do that. From all kinds of people. Do we truly believe 
that the gospel is truly for anyone? Or do we maybe state that as belief, but then in actuality we, we live perhaps even unknowingly, we don't even realize it, but unknowingly as if God is only the God of certain people. That he has a special or, or greater love for America or some other country or some other people on the basis of race or nationality or socioeconomic strata, culture, whatever we want to do. Do we even maybe unknowingly? Not that we're even purposeful. Maybe, maybe some of us are purposeful. Maybe some of us aren't. We just unknowingly live that way. Think that way. The truth is that God loves the whole world. And He will save people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language. Gather them together in His church. This is Revelation 5. This is Revelation 7. It is going to happen. And it is happening. That's going to save all kinds of people. And folks, that's why we're still on this planet. If you are a believer... You are still on this planet to be an ambassador for Christ to those who do not know Him. To commend the gospel with your life and to speak the gospel with your lips. That's why we are here. God could go ahead and take us home to glory. But He's left us here. To worship and enjoy Him and lead others to do the same. And how is he going to do that? How, how is he going to save people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language? How is God going to save, not, not literally all people, because we don't believe in universalism. There's going to be people who don't go to heaven. But how is he going to save all kinds of people? Well, he's going to do that through the ransom that Jesus has provided. And that's number three in your notes. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. Look at verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator. We sing that, right? There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so these verses right here, man, they are chock full of theological truth. First of all, we see the unity of God uh, stated, that there is only one God. This is the Jewish Shema, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, right? There is only one God. And that statement in Ephesus right, would have landed like a Chuck Norris roundhouse because in that place they had this veneration of a multiplicity of gods, particularly Artemis. One of the wonders of the world was a temple built to Artemis in Ephesus. If you go read Acts, the dude gets all upset because so many people are coming to, Christian, to, coming to Christ that they're not buying their little Artemis statues anymore. Would to God that that would be the case with strip clubs in Nashville that so many people would start coming to Christ that people aren't going to those anymore. And that we would love those who are in those 
jobs and professions trapped. So first of all, we see that God is one. There is only one God. Monotheism. But monotheism won't save you. And so then Paul comes in and kind of tightens the screws down and says, hey, yes, not only is there one God, but there's only one way to this one true God. And that is through the God-man, Christ Jesus. And a lot of people flip out over this, that there's only one way of salvation. All right, we're going to talk about the exclusivity of this claim in just a minute. But before we even get to talking about that there's only you know one way, the first thing we just need to kind of get our arms around is that God has even made a way. He didn't have to. We don't deserve it. He would be perfectly just to leave us in our sins. We've rebelled. We've sinned. We've committed treason against the God of the universe. And so he would have been perfectly just to have been like, you sinned, you rebelled, you chose it, go to hell. He would have been completely just, completely just, holy, justice, all that. So we've done that. But in his love, God didn't. He made a way. He made a way when he didn't have to. That's grace. That's mercy. He made a way for us to know him, for us to be forgiven, for us to have infinite joy, eternal life. He made a way to be rescued. And that way has a name and that way is Jesus. He is, verse 5, the mediator. He's the go-between holy God and sinful man because he is fully God and fully man. And so because he's fully God, he can satisfy God's standards. And because he's fully man, he can meet our obligations. And so as one commentator put it, he paid the price that only man could owe and only God could pay. This is the mediator. And what is that price? Verse 6, it's a ransom. It's a ransom. Now what's a ransom? I'm not talking about the movie that Mel Gibson made before we went crazy. Back in like the late 90s. But a ransom is a price paid for the release of slaves or captives. All right, so in our day, folks will kidnap someone, they will hijack a car, a plane, whatever, and in exchange for the release of prisoners or... Oh, yeah, if they're going to give up their... The uh, hostages, they will say, hey, pay us money, do this. They'll demand a ransom of some sort. And folks, we're the hostages. We're the captives that Christ has come to set free. We're those that are in bondage. Bondage to sin, bondage to judgment, bondage to the wrath of God for our sin, unable to save ourselves. And so Jesus ransomed us from these things. Okay, His death on the cross was in exchange for sin. It wasn't a price paid to the devil. It was a price paid for the justice of God to be met. And so on the cross, Jesus took our place and He bore the wrath that we deserve in our place as a substitute that I deserve 
undeniably deserve, and so do you. Jesus did that for you because He loves you. Because He loves you. God of the universe, we prayed about, calls things out, loves you. And He did that for you. And gave His life as a ransom. And again, He didn't have to. He chose to. He made a way where there wasn't a way. He chose to give us a way. He didn't have to. So praise Him that He made a way. He made a way for us to be rescued from sin. But it is only through Jesus that there is that way. Verse 5, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. But it's not just Paul who calls this out. Jesus Himself states this about Himself. John 14, 6, He says that I am the way, singular, the truth, singular, the life, singular. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he's saying, like, he's not saying I am a way and I am a truth and I am a life. He said, no, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way, the only truth. And the only life. There is no other way. There is no other ultimate truth. There is no other eternal life. It's just me. That's what Jesus says. And again, people flip out over this, right? I mean, no one flips out over spirituality or praying or, 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 uh, wanting to see miracles or supernatural. I mean, how many TV shows are about the supernatural, right? No one flips out over these religious things. I'm pretty open to that. But what they struggle with is exclusivity. That one religion is right and all the others are wrong. That one sacred scripture is right and all the others are wrong. That one path to God is right and all the others are wrong. They struggle with that exclusive claim. And listen, I've said this and I I say it because it's true. A lot of times Christians can be a bit narrow-minded. And we don't think. But when it comes to the exclusivity of the gospel. And of Christ. We are rightly. Properly. Thinkingly. If that's a word. And necessarily narrow minded. Because Jesus is. And always will be. He says I am the way. I am the life. I am. Uh, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one except through me. Now, that doesn't mean we hate those that are, you know, worship a different God. It doesn't mean we're unkind towards those of another religion. It doesn't mean that we don't not love those who disagree with us. Rather, we do love them and we love them in a way that is truthful and tells them about Christ lovingly. And so my wife's developed in this relationship with a lady named Nerman. Nerman is um, from, well, she moved here from Jordan, but from Jordan she lived in Syria, and she fled Syria to Jordan, from Jordan to here. Nerman has uh, been in her house three or four times. Sarah's been in her house several more times than that. Nerman uh, is a Muslim. And um, we did not walk into her house day one and, and say, hi, Nerman, nice to meet you. Did you know you worship a demon? 
And do I believe that? Yes. Is that how you love someone towards Christ? No. No. Use intentionality. Neighbor love. You are godly and dignified. You serve. You be a great, like the great Samaritan. You serve him. Though she's lost. We want to see her come to Christ. If she can get a ride, so I'm throwing this out there, and it might take some time to get to know this, but I think she would be open to coming here to learn English. And I think she would show up. This is what we're here to do, folks. We love people towards Christ. Because he's the only way. And it's no more, Tim Keller says this, it's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than it is to claim that one way to think about all religion is right. Namely, that they're all the same. It's no more narrow. Everybody, everybody is exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. And so the exclusivity, exclusivity of Christ, the exclusivity of the gospel, this is a legit deal. Jesus is the only way. All religious roads do not lead to the top. But friends, what we've got to see about this and what is so remarkable about this is how inclusive this exclusive claim is. Because it's inclusive, inclusive of anyone who will believe. Anyone. Like no one is going to be barred from coming to Christ on the basis of race or gender or background or location or status or sins that have been committed. No one. The gospel is totally inclusive of anyone and everyone who will repent and believe. Jesus gave his ransom, himself as a ransom for all. And we can sit here and we could debate the limits of the atonement because it's got to be limited in some way. Not everybody's going to heaven, right? And so we can sit here and debate the limits of atonement. And I'll be glad to do that if anyone wants to afterwards. But we could also get busy doing what we've been called to do, which is share the gospel with anyone and everyone and let God sort that out. The whole point here the whole point is that the hope of the gospel is inclusive of all people, of all times, in all places, who will simply repent and believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so the dividing line then is lack of belief and belief. That's the dividing line. Not your background. Not the religion you grew up in, not your morality, not your sexuality, not your look or your culture. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, cool or uncool, brilliant or unbrilliant. doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, country or rock, rural or urban, sick or healthy. doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. None of that matters. It just doesn't. Jesus came to save anyone. Who will believe no prerequisites? None. And so my question for you this morning is, do you know Jesus? 
Do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Do you appreciate Jesus? Are you a believer in Jesus? And if you're not, why not? He gave his life as a ransom for you. To rescue you from sin and death. We are all going to stand before God someday. And we can either stand there and hold up our works, here's what I did, God, and be condemned. Or we can stand there and say, I have nothing, but I plead the blood of Jesus. What He did, His works, I trust that to be what makes me right before You. Nothing else. And be welcomed in. And so, friend, without Christ, trust Him today. Trust Him. And then for those of us in here who are believers, who are Christians, again, the whole reason that you are on this earth and have not gone home to glory is to make Him known to those who do not. And so we pray for all people because God desires to save all people and He gave Himself as a ransom for all people. And so that means number four, we are to take the gospel to all people. Okay, number four in your notes, super fast. We are to take the gospel to all people. And so you will get verse seven. For this reason, I, Paul is the, Apostle Paul is the author. For this reason, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so Paul was appointed very specifically to the office of apostle, all right? Which in many places is capital A apostle. There are 13 of them. The, the, the disciples minus Judas plus Matthias and Paul, 13. Those are the apostles, capital A. But all believers are called to be apostles, lowercase a, because what apostle means is messenger. We are messengers of Christ. So a capital A apostle, so you see someone like apostle so-and-so, don't go to that church. Okay? Lowercase a apostle, that's who we are. We're called to be lowercase a apostles, messengers of the gospel, taking it to the na- to our neighbors and to the nations. We're here to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. So the question for you, if you are a believer, who are you leading to do the same? Who are you leading? Who are you seeking to lead? If you're a parent, better be seeking to lead your kids. It doesn't end there. That's where it starts. Who are you seeking to lead? This is why we're on earth and have not gone home to glory. And so as we say so often, you do not live where you live on accident. God puts you there to reach those around you with the gospel. You don't work where you work on accident. God puts you there for a bigger purpose than work. You do not work out where you work out on purpose. God puts you there for a bigger purpose. He's playing a bigger game than we can see. 
These are sovereign moves of God to save people. And He wants to work through you. He gives us that privilege and that opportunity and that responsibility. So let's be responsible and do it. Let's commend the gospel with our life and let's speak it with our lips. And so just as much as a young baseball player has to be reminded to get his glove on the ground and get in front of the ball, let us be reminded to pray and live on mission. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you because we cannot do anything in and of ourselves. We are helpless and you are our helper. We are weak and you are infinitely mighty. We are unintelligent and you are omniscient. We have small brains and you have an infinite brain. Father, help us. Burden us with a concern for the world. With a concern for church planners and missionaries. With a concern for people who are hurting and in desperation. With a concern for 1.6 billion people who have never even heard the name of Jesus. Burden our wallets. Burden our prayer life. Burden our minds. Bother us. to work and move and live for You and for these purposes. We thank You, God, that You have come into the world to save, that You have made a ransom, Jesus, that You are our mediator. You've made a way for us to be made right. You've bridged the gap between a holy God, an infinitely holy, sovereign God, and a humanity that's totally depraved. You've made a way. We praise You and we thank You. We praise You and we thank You, God. You are, your grace and Your mercy are overwhelming. You were seated on Your throne in glory. You love us and draw us to Yourself. Help us to live out our purpose of making disciples of all the nations in the time that we have, something that will have an effect 10,000 years from now and not just 10 months. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.